0: Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Pete Denby, co-founder of Hyperfinity. This is To Affinity and Beyond, our podcast about decision intelligence, data science and AI, with a particular focus on all things retail and consumer products. We all know it's a very turbulent time for retailers filled with challenges, risks and opportunities. Over two episodes, we'll explore six of the biggest trends we're seeing in retail. We'll talk about what they mean for retailers, and as we're a data science and AI company, we'll provide some insight on how data can be used to address each trend. I'm joined today by my Hyperfinity co-founder and our, our Chief Customer Officer, Thomas Hill. So hi, Tom, where do we find you today?
1: uh hi pete when you find me in leeds uh and you find me very frustrated after a long and expensive drive in in the absolute rain i think i might have sailed in half the way rather than driven uh I, I did that because obviously we've got train strikes going on regularly um and i can't trust the rail network at the minute especially across the north west to north east which is horrific um and the government needs to sort that one out uh, i 'm slowly off the back of a 10, two ten hour waits in a and e recently for parents and children uh, and the nurse strikes as well uh, and By the way, as I talk about strikes, I want you to know i 'm in full support of the right to strike and I'm supportive of the nurses and the railway workers for the shoddy way in which they 've been treated to do their jobs, which is a critical service for the uk so we 're going straight in with the controversy uh, Anyone want to comment on that feel free i'll have a good chat about it. Um, and also, yeah, I think it's it's all fun at the minute, isn't it? With inflation going through the roof, um, as I've already talked about, my petrol costs a fair bit today. Uh, my food's costing an absolute fortune every time I go to the supermarket, and that's some of the things that we'll be talking about later. Hopefully, data can solve all of this, Pete. But right now, um, yeah, the, we'll, we'll just go with Welcome where we to are. to the
0: Grumpy Old Men podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Politics included. Um, Okay, well, things can only get better, Tom. So why don't we get into some data and retail chat? Okay, cool. So um, as promised, we're going to talk about some of the major trends impacting retailers in 2023. uh, And we're going to cover three biggies today. So we're going to talk about the cost of living crisis. uh, We're going to talk about the collapse and consolidation of retailers. uh, And we're going to talk about retail media, a new path to retail profit. So let's talk, start with the cost of living crisis, which has been widely documented and felt acutely by everyone, particularly Tom, as you saw via the intro. We seem to have been caught in a perfect storm over the past um, couple of years, COVID-19 pandemic, the war in Ukraine, and the fallout from Brexit, among the many things that are contributing to the current situation that we face. Uh, the Guardian ran an article at the end of last year, um, which was based on Barclay Card. Uh, spend data and in it they noted that the UK's annual inflation rate uh, already stood at just over five percent at the start of 2022 but was pushed higher by the impact of uh, impact on gas and electricity bills of Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February. By November it had more than doubled to almost 11 percent. Retailers have uh, failed to benefit from the post-lockdown boost in the UK high street activity this year after soaring energy bills and a cost of living crisis forced households to rein in their spending. Despite an increase in face-to-face shopping after lifting of the uh, COVID-19 restrictions, Card data released for the whole of 2022 showed retail spending fell 0.8% on the previous year. Um, Card said the number of transactions this year was up last year by 5%, But the highest inflation in four decades had resulted in smaller basket sizes as consumers sought to keep track of their budgets. So, Tom, um, what impact are you seeing on retailers, um, which has been caused by this cost of living crisis?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I think um, the first one is sales. Let's start where it's hurting the retailers the most. With inflation peaking um, this year, as, to all sort of predictions, um, it's still been in there. And what retailers have been doing is taking cost cost pressures and cost price increases and passing them on to the consumer. Um, and at times like this, I think understanding where you can do that and where you can't do that, has been absolutely critical. And and that's happened over the last year. It's going to be a really interesting 2023, um, because I just talked about, with um, inflation peaking, um, it's set to continue, but it's expected to hopefully fall. I think what really matters at this point is that retailers will be fighting uh, for consumer budgets and consumer spend. And it very much, I think, is going to be a year of consumer champions Um, How popular has Martin Lewis been over the last year all of a sudden again? Because consumer champions matter when you can't afford things that are absolutely vital for basic life, such as food uh, and energy. Uh, What happens at that point is I think it gives retailers the opportunity to rise up as that consumer champion. And certainly where the value based retailers, there's going to be a big play there. And they've got to be really careful in making sure that they reflect cost price increases to protect margins. Um, So I think we'll still see a lot of um, price increases going through, but absolutely where basic goods, things that matter to consumers, things they need on a day-to-day basis to live, I think there's going to get into more of price wars again. And there's going to be a real balance of things, the way in which retailers price things we need, as basics, and the way in which retailers price things that we want, so discretionary purchases. Um, and I think that's going to be really, really interesting as we sort of go through the next year.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And what would what, what you um, how would you define a consumer champion?
1: Uh, well, I think there's the multiple in many ways. So Martin Lewis is the obvious one because he talks solely independently of, of any retail or energy company uh, that, that, he, that he's looking into. But for a retailer, I think very much around um, a retailer that takes a grasp of a key need for the consumer. Um and and looks to help them. So I I know within food retail, this happens a lot, um, but the likes of um, sort of Tesco, Morrison's, Asda putting in low price meals um, during the school holidays, things like that, when people have real squeezed budgets, but they need to make sure that they feed their kids, what can those types of retailers do to help? And maybe just take the fact that they're not going to make money on that space, but they're helping their community and playing a role in their community uh and that, and i guess that's one example of where retail can be a consumer champion as well as obviously making the the cash that they're looking to deliver from margins
0: yeah so something around purpose over profit at, at, at times um which hopefully we're seem to we're we're starting to see in a little bit more uh we're seeing a little bit more of um, like you're, you're talking about uh, that in respect to the cost of living crisis, you could apply the same thought uh, process to sustainability as well, sustainable packaging, that type of thing. Something that re- retailers um, could uh, presumably have uh, brought into play much earlier, um, but at uh, the um, expense of uh, profits. But you know, thankfully now more and more are cottoning on, onto the fact that we need to save the planet, and it's something they're their consumers um, are really demanding, so they're they're um, making much greater efforts and strides into uh, that kind of sustainability agenda. Um, I think also on the um, thinking about the, the the cost of living crisis and what retailers can do to uh, help their customers, um, we're seeing some retailers uh, adapt their um, product propositions so that they can provide a more um, affordable line of uh, products. So Asda is a great example. Asda Essentials has really, really um, caught the imagination of their customers, you know, offering lower priced products. So, you know, perhaps that's uh, something that um, uh, more retailers could look to adopt. And, you know, how how would they typically, you know, how would a retailer typically go about uh, identifying whether there's an opportunity to introduce that kind of proposition to their customers?
1: Well, As we sort of introduced at the start of this, I think it'd be remiss of us not to mention data and the role that it can play in this. Uh, And I think we'll stick with food retail for a second because they have so much data uh, in how consumers respond to price uh, because they've got so many products that are persistent over time and they change the price of those products. So you can very quickly see where does price matter uh, to a customer, i.e. when you put the price up, they stop buying it. Um, and, And where doesn't it matter? Uh, so, where you put the price up, they continue to buy it but but let 's get clear on this that there are two two facets to that second part. If you put the price of milk up, consumers will still buy it because they need it, and that comes back to that need right so then it's then it 's reliant on the retailer to make sure that they 're not punishing customers for the things that they need, and they 're thinking about their own margin and price balance to make sure that they are protecting um, the the, the customer's budget where it matters. The other thing to say in that is generally within food retail, all of the retailers hold each other to account in that space. The really, really um, key lines that consumers buy week in, week out tend to be the ones that everyone battles on over price. So there's a little bit of self-fulfilling there. Um, but that that is relevant to other retail areas all other retail areas. And I think it's massively data is massively underutilized for other retail types. And I'll talk about fashion as an example. So let's come back to sort of three areas uh, that you can identify through data for, for price investment or price inflation. Um, and, and they are basic and needs. Let's talk about milk for a second. So what does that look like in fashion? It's your basic T-shirts. It's your basic jeans. Yeah, it's things that people need to operate on a daily basis. It's your school uniforms and that you want to be a consumer champion. That has definitely been one of the battlegrounds of recent years, because as we sort of talked about already with school meals, Parents are under a lot of pressure. School uniforms are very expensive. So the more retailers can help out in that space um, and become a consumer champion, that matters because people have to buy school uniforms. So because you have to buy it, you could price that higher, but you shouldn't. And that's where a retailer can go. I'm making a decision to be a consumer champion and to help people that have to buy school uniforms. Um, then, Then you get into sort of the opposite end of the scale, discretionary treats. So when you get into a, a sort of inflation and recession based economy, what people tend to do is they buy the basic things at the lowest cost. And that's why this sort of reinvention of Asda Smart Price has been so successful, because it's always been a great product. I've got a previous history with Asda, by the way, if anyone's questioning that. It's always been a great product, um, but it, it looked terrible. The packaging was terrible. You it, it, it looked at it and you went, that's horrible and cheap often, yeah, the quality of that product was akin to mid-tier. So the same sort of mid-tier product range that, that you have in supermarkets. In many cases, they've just rebranded it. Yeah, so they've rebranded it. So people have gone, this is amazing. No, it was always amazing. It just looks better. That's the first bit. Uh, the, the second bit is um, they've also sort of engineered and looked to take um, what was previously mid-tier items and just bring them down slightly. This can be more cost-effective uh, for the consumer. So that's what, Again, food supermarkets are done. But the, at the opposite end, what people then do is to treat themselves. And they tend to treat themselves around occasions. So within food, that might be a meal in on a Saturday night. And actually more premium products, because instead of going out for a meal, I'm going to treat myself to a really nice bottle of wine, um, some wonderful lamb shanks with some dauphinoise potato, probably some cream spinach and a, a little bit of uh tender stem broccoli to go with it. That is my go to MS uh, meal for two on a Saturday <laughs> night, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but but that, that's what you do. You, you, you also treat yourself. That's the same in fashion, so bringing it back to fashion. And what you've got to understand is fashion retailers that operate in that space, I think, will continue to do well because people will want to treat themselves when it matters. I'm going to a party. I want to feel good. On Saturday night, I'm going to buy a new dress, and I'm willing to spend a bit of money on that. What you get though is that bit in the middle, and it's going to get squeezed and it'll be really, really interesting. And that's where data really matters. So, when you've got this mass of margin driving volume lines in the middle, um, you've got to make sure you price those correctly. Uh, And that's where data and understanding which are more price sensitive. And so, when you change the price, the volume will change um, and less price sensitive. So, you can start to make the right price decisions. On the area of your range that's going to have a big impact on your overall profit delivery and margin
0: okay, yeah no I think it's a really good uh really good points um and I think um you know another interesting uh, uh angle to this is is um consumers trading down um so there was a piece in the retail Gazette. Um, uh, uh, was looking at um, different trends for 2023. Um, And Richard Walker, who's the managing director at Iceland, uh, he told Retail Gazette that as people continue to cut down on household costs, Iceland is seeing an increase in customers through its doors who may have once gone to um, more expensive retailers to shop. And those new customers, some of whom may never have been to Iceland before, provide a huge growth opportunity for us and we know we have something competi- competitive to offer them in return um and we're also we also saw a major um shift in the grocery retail landscape in 2022 when aldi um entered the uh, 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 the big four, the big four, the big five, um, uh, uh, Grocers, I think, taking the place of Morrison's in in that list, and um, so continued growth um, with their value proposition, uh, and presumably uh, customers kind of trading uh, down slightly from the likes of Morrison's and Tesco are also cited as one of the uh, big losers in that um, area. So it'll be uh, interesting to see how 2023 progresses. Uh, but then also, I think, um, you know, we're talking about the the kind of c- consumer mass in the UK uh, in particular, if you like. But is there still an opportunity for more premium retailers to win customers? Um, because, you know, whereas lots of people are struggling with the cost of living crisis, um, I think it's, you know, pretty plain to see that in some areas, uh, um, a lot of uh, customer behaviour um, has not really changed um, and you know um, some of the wealthy have become even more wealthy so presumably for more luxury retailers and high-end retailers there's still a, a, an opportunity so you know if you're a retailer or a brand and your your key uh, audience of customers is, is a more uh, affluent group of customers what what could you be doing to make sure that you kind of protect that group and you continue to grow your business any thoughts on that Tom?
1: Yeah, I think uh, if you're premium, be premium. That's that's the main thing that I'd say. Make sure you are differentiated in the market and you've got a reason to be. Um, so let, let's think about the fashion retailers that we've sort of seen over recent time, Reese being, being a key one. Um, so Reese were a premium brand which had good fashion, uh, differentiated fashion at a premium price. Um, and then over time, what happened was H&M came and went. Well, we've taken your fashion and we've made it at half the price and probably quarter of the price. And Rees went, "Yeah, as is better." And H&M went, "Yeah, well, as looks the same." And Reece, and then what Rees did is, as their sales started to decline, their proposition declined, and they started to come closer to H&M in terms of the proposition, and they and they weren't differentiated. Um, And ultimately, that was a challenge for them as a business. And I think that um, you've got to have a reason to be. You see it with Mint Velvet at the minute. They seem to have kind of stolen a march in that space of premium. Packaging is really, really important. Experience is really, really important for a a premium luxury brand retailer. Um, And you've got to make sure that all of those things come together to make it a differentiated experience. The worst thing that you can happen is to get stuck in that slightly sort of um, luxury but not really premium brand where people go, is is it really worth spending 20, 30% more when actually I still get come out with a plastic bag <laughs> and get no help. And I get no help when I'm in the store. Um, and and ultimately that doesn't feel right. The best example, I love this as an example by the way, of a brand absolutely ruining their premium sort of credentials is Thornton's. So you look at Hotel Chocolat today, and that's a perfectly beautifully balanced premium brand it's the quality of the product the packaging um everything that they do thornton's used to be that do we remember like people used to go out and like treat their partners to is it viennese what was the other one? alpini oh the alpini logs amazing <laughs> um and all of a sudden what they did is they went into um their sales started to decline and so, what they did is they started to diversify and go into retailers which didn't match their uh, brand. And instantly, it devalued the brand. And what happened as a result of that, which, and obviously, you can still get a lot of Thornton's, you can go to Wilkinson's to buy Thornton's toffee. I remember mean, Thornton's toffee was like the biggest treat you could buy on a Saturday. Uh, Brazil nut toffee, the
0: best. Before my time. Um,
1: oh. Not really. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, and but uh, Wilkinson, I'm not, and that's no, Wilkinson, I still think is the best high street store in the world. Uh, what can't you buy from Wilkinson's? Um, but it's not the right place for Thorntons as a premium brand. So my biggest advice or thoughts around how to succeed in this market as a luxury retailer is be luxury. And if you can't afford to be luxury,
0: give up. Strong words, strong words to finish the topic. Although we will at some point revisit your um, assertion that um, h H&M and uh, Reese are the same. I, I completely disagree. Well, there we go. And Wilco's being the best um, store on a high street. Again, I'm not sure about that. But yeah, we, we, we can have a, a retailer debate some other time. I'd like <laughs> to hear
1: your competition. <laughs>
0: Personal preferences. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder.
1: Where else can you buy a, a toilet seat and pick and mix in the same store, Pete?
0: I mean, it, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not a, a need state. I often find myself having, to be honest with you, it's not, not, not something I typically look for. But niche, I would say, very niche. Um, Okay, cool. So, we'll move on to the second uh, topic for today. Uh, I'm going to talk about the collapse and consolidation of retailers. It's been a very, very turbulent time for retailers in 2022. Um, So, according to um, Daily Mail, that high-quality news outlet... Um, more than 17,000 shops shut in 2022 in the worst year for retail in five years. Um, Of course, some businesses have seen this as an opportunity to buy and consolidate retailers and brands into their portfolio. Uh, Next, and Fraser's Group being very prominent examples. So Tom, what's your um, view on the a collapse and consolidation of, of retailers and uh, in particular wh- where, where do you think retailers have found themselves getting into difficulty which has caused their businesses to go under
1: uh... um, I, I think there are multiple reasons the obvious one let's start with it is the declining footfall on the high street um, Covid came and went but ultimately people's habits around work have changed and I think fundamentally for good um, there's the rise of the twats um, so people that are in Tuesdays, <laughs> Wednesdays, and Thursdays. Um, so no, no one wants to be in on a Monday or a Friday anymore. And even, and even on those days, footfall's massively, massively declined. So city centres are fundamentally changing. That that was happening before COVID, but the acceleration has is huge. So retailers that were on the edge before COVID, and there are many of them, had no chance. Um, what you then are left with um, is Ultimately, what we've just described, but using food and a, and a little bit of fashion, what, what you what you get is the likes of Primark, um, which still don't have a strong uh, online offer. You're a reason to go in. And why do you go to Primark? And that is I want fashion, but I want it at very affordable prices. Um, and and if I'm in that need, then I will go to the high street and I will go to Primark and I will buy what I need. If I want a basic white T-shirt and I want it at the lowest price possible, I will go to Primark and I will buy that. Um, and and then what you've got is premium retailers, which again seem to be still doing okay. Um, that the treat the treat economy during this time, uh, wanting to spoil myself, saving all of my money, but then. Willing to treat myself on a few uh, things, a few luxury goods, which make me feel good. i uh, doing okay. What's happened and where it has consolidated is in that middle, and as we talked about. So you think about the types of brands um that, that have been going and, and where they're being sucked into. I use Next as an example. So Next is right bang in the middle, uh, as with M&S, um, and I think John Lewis is as much as he desperately doesn't want to be there, getting sucked in that direction. Um, but, but what Next have done, um, probably before uh, the decline in the high street, is that they already had the catalogue offer. We'll probably talk a little bit about catalogue retailers and the data that, that creates uh, throughout this podcast. But they were historically a store and catalogue based retailer. So they have naturally shifted to a, a multi-channel world easier than some of the brands that have, have gone uh, and have struggled with it um, because they've already got a supply chain. Uh, and you think about Argos as well, another retailer that's naturally done its supply chain. They have had a supply chain set up ready for online propositions. Uh, they've done okay. Uh, and Next have started, obviously, consolidating some brands and some really interesting brands. So Reese, as we've mentioned before, um, they have got a major shareholding in Reese and probably will have it at some point. Victoria's Secret in there, Superdry um, and, 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 and others. But what becomes really interesting in that space now, what will enable them to succeed is leveraging that customer data. Um, And leveraging that customer data around some key principles that I bang on about and will never change probably for the future of mankind, which is (laughs) ease, speed and value for money delivered by retailers. Yeah. So what do I mean by ease? Uh, Let's talk about next. And I think this, this links us into data product personalization, seems to have gone by the wayside. Uh, Stacking product onto websites, like as much as you can get on there, increases your sales short term. Yeah, what it also does is it gives a horrific customer experience and people can't find uh, what they're looking for. Conversion ultimately will take a hit and ease is gonna get affected. What's the answer to that? Product personalization. And what do we mean by product personalization in that middle ground and what will make people succeed? So the importance of search, sort order. As a customer, who am I and what am I interested in? If I'm on the next site, am I interested in Superdry or am I interested in Reese? Because I tell you right now, they are different types of consumer. Um, and ultimately, if if I'm having to scroll through 50 Superdry items to get to the Reese coat that I want, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get bored and I'm, I'm not going to have bought it. Similarly, um, and again, I can't comment on next strategy, but I do look at the website of now and again. They seem to still have a focus on their own brand range being top of the sort order. That's not right. okay? That, I mean, yes, that's probably where their margins are biggest, but it's not right for as a customer that it takes me a longer time to find what I'm after. That's what we're talking about with ease, speed. So this is all around taxonomy, search, Uh, tagging and we'll talk about product attribute and tagging and how we can do that from a data driven way Um, but we have to tag items correctly they have to be easy to find in search and if you've not done that i won't find the coat that i want i won't buy it and you've lost my sale Um, so very much a case of um making sure that we're tagging products with the right attributes which means they're easily found on the website when i'm searching and then the final one and we talked about this in the previous conversation make sure it's value for money So make sure you're benchmarking those products against the competitor that matters to you as a retailer, Um, making sure that if you are more expensive, there's a reason you're more expensive. And if you want to be value, make sure you are competitive and offering genuine value on that. Um, So in the middle, um, in that sort of squeezed middle where it really matters, that online proposition where brands are getting consolidated left right and center products are getting thrown on a website um by more and more um and supplier integration is just becoming the norm you've got to make sure that you personalize that range you merchandise it on the website like you would in a store so i walk in and i go that inspires me that's what i want Uh, and you do that through data and i've noticed over the last year maybe two years that retailers that were doing it well, I think, have started to put product over experience way too much. Mm. Um, and it, and it's taken me way too long getting through reams of stuff that I'm not interested in to get to the stuff that I am. That, for me, both in-store, what range should I have and how should I price it, and online, when do I show it to you, is going to be critical for those sort of retailers that sit in the middle um, to succeed at this time.
0: Yeah, and I guess uh, retailers have got to make a a tough decision at some point, particularly if they're acquiring other brands. Um, They they, they're going to reach. I mean, it may be that there's a temptation to put all the products on the website and say, "Okay, customers, you go and find these things." But at some point, you've got to tailor that. That range is going to be narrowed down. You know, you might have ten. You know, dark blue jumpers from one retailer. You might have another. 10 from another retailer that you um, you choose to acquire, um, but you might not need 20 dark blue jumpers. You might need five dark blue jumpers. So at some point, they've got to make that decision. They've kind of got to cut the cord, you know, trim the wrench so it's much more manageable uh, and easier to navigate for a, a, um, a customer. So some some challenging decisions needed there. But then to your point, Tom, um, it has got to be merchandised really effectively, particularly uh, in an e-commerce environment where more and more, uh, customers are uh, buying products or at least um researching products before they go into a store to to, to buy them
1: interesting you said cut the cord Pete um, because I'm wearing my m s cords today um and what's really interesting is ms have just acquired thread um so I did quite a bit of shopping through thread they were one of the sort of uh, pioneers in leveraging data and product attributes to make recommendations in in the fashion market and obviously had multiple retailers and brands on their website what i really liked about what thread did is they knew my size they knew my fit um and they knew my brand preferences and then they also looked to append style attributes to that so they could make recommendations and and what i liked about their website was i could look at multiple brands and retailers um but know that it was tailored and the first hundred products that i would see would be a better fit for me than the second hundred and with M and S acquiring them, it'd be really interesting to see how much of that capability they actually take on and land on their website because there should be a great opportunity to do exactly what I've just said, having acquired uh, that business.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And um, you know, um I tried tried thread out a few times, um, and I, I really like the basic premise of it. Um where I think they struggled was their variety of brands. I thought that they they, they obviously were unable to um Strike partnerships with a sufficient variety of brands to make it really, really uh, interesting and sticky. Uh, certainly from my perspective, um, but I think yeah, the M&S acquisition is is really interesting, and that might um, help them to create a more engaging shopping experience for for their customers. So very kind of forward thinking. Um, also, nod to M&S, their clothing range as uh, men's clothing range has vastly improved for the forty something wannabe hipster demographic.
1: Hence hence my brilliant chords,
0: Pete. (laughs) Exactly. So I think um, it's on the up. I I like M&S. I've got a lot lot of time for them. M&S apparently did very well over Christmas with their um, uh, food uh, trading as well. Um, Lots of people uh, splashed out on M&S goodies for their Christmas dinner and uh, other meals over the festive period. So, um, yeah, hopefully M&S go from strength to strength.
1: Occ- occasions for a treat as well there Pete what more so than christmas and um exactly the other the other thing just to link it back to data that I, I mentioned there that I'll continue with which is product attributes so the reason thread worked um was that it attributed all of the products which meant that you could quickly filter you could quickly sort and you could quickly recommend products suited to me um that is one thing that i think is fundamentally critical to get right for all retailers and certainly um, a lot of the ones that I've experienced struggle with it so often it's reliant on the buyer/ trader to fill out their product attributes at the point of registering a product uh, on the product file um, and often they're not incentivized to get it right yet that is fundamentally critical um, to selling those products and often if it's let's it's sticking fashion if you're a, if you're a fashion buyer you're not a data entry person you are you, what's on the catwalk what's in three seasons ahead what inspires me what materials yeah that's not akin to uh, let me fill out a spreadsheet to make sure that this product sells on a website so that has to be separated out into the right skill set with the right people and you've got to get it right at, at the start your product file of data entry needs to be right to power that the other thing, and, and something that we do uh, with our solutions, is then consumer-centric product attribution. So what retailers don't do as much of, but should be doing a lot more, and this is where we can help, is looking at what search terms are customers using to find products. Um, so not, not what I'm calling a product, what are they calling a product. So are they calling a product a warm coat as opposed to down coat? Uh, Are they calling a product uh, winter coat again? Um, And and have you got that? Have you tagged your product with winter? Um, Because that's, and some people do, and do it really, really well. Some people don't. Um, So leveraging search terms, uh, reviews, uh, and and other things like that, what we can do is use data techniques and data mining techniques to apply attributes to products as to how consumers are describing them and reimagining your range uh, from a customer-centric point of view. That fundamental, get your product file right at data entry. And there's going to be some key attributes that you've got to get right. Size, color, fit. Yeah. You need to make sure that your merchandise is getting those filled out correctly. But then on top of that, when you're putting that on a Google, uh, Google ad, Google shopping ad, PLA, um, or, or, just on your website, you've got to make sure that you augment those product tags with the way in which customers are describing your products so that when they're searching for it in Google, you're coming up with relevant products for the relevant search terms.
0: Yeah, br- brilliant points. And, and I guess for a lot of um, traditional retailers, there's a challenge there because there's the, you know, the way you've described it there, it sounds like a no-brainer, but that's a fundamental shift for a lot of retailers. Um, you're asking a, a group of people, the traders, you um, to um To do something that 's not natural to to them at all, and um, so that 's when there 's a transformation piece required to get the right skill sets to work alongside a trader or the right um, technology products there so that it makes it easy for them it 's not seen as a burden, but it ultimately helps the organization down the line so there's strong strong reasons to uh, to to do that I think what will be an also uh, also be an interesting subject to deep dive uh, into a little um, in a future episode would be um a thread um, and Stitch Fix, who are the the US equivalent? I think the trailblazers in in that um, market. And what happened to Thread and why they ended up um, being sold to M&S? I think that could um, that could uh, uh, be a nice little standalone episode. So maybe that's something that we'll come back to at a at a at a, um, at a time in the future. Um, but I think there's also you know talking about acquiring retailers. I think there's also some big um, uh, benefits to those companies, the likes of Next who are acquiring lots of retailers and lots of brands. I think if they can find um, other retailers who have similar uh, profi- a similar profile of customers to, to, to theirs, it helps them expand that range, give their customers more um, choice, funnily enough, after I've talked about kind of trimming the product range. But there can be a, uh, some opportunity there to um, augment their existing product range by buying another retailer uh, or, or a brand. Um, and on the data front, uh, when um the acquiring company is doing their due diligence, they really should be looking to do some analysis of the uh the retailer or the retailers, customers of the um the company they're looking to acquire to see how similar that is to their own customer base. There's obviously some supply chain benefits um and economies of scale um to combining um the the the, the kind of um uh, the, the the buying power and the logistics services of of multiple retailers um you could maybe point to a credit offering. So um, a retailer may buy another retailer to uh, be able to access its credit offering. That's really, really important in uh, times of economic downturn. You know, lots of customers uh, need credit to be able to buy the products that they the products that they want, but also the products that they need. The the, the products that they just need to to be able to kind of live their life. Um, and sometimes there's a, a um, you know benefits to the the, the brand. Um, having the brand in the portfolio for the retailer and also to the property, talking about loads and loads of shops being shut. Um, some retailers are going the other way. Some some retailers recognize the value of having a physical footprint. You know, we saw that with Amazon buying uh, Whole Foods a few years ago. Um, so sometimes a retailer will look to buy another retail uh, retailer who's got lots and lots of stores and then enhances their own kind of store-based uh, proposition. Maybe saw that with McColl's. You know, um, there's a protracted situation with McColl's where well, I think we had um, a couple of the big grocery uh, retailers looking to acquire them. And eventually, I think Morrison's bought uh, McColl's. Although, funnily, the McColl's in my local village has remained a McColl's. Um, and you can actually get a free newspaper, a free Financial Times, six days a week if you spend three pounds or more. And sometimes they give it away for free. Interesting business model, giving your newspaper away for free.
1: I think, yeah, I was just going to pick up on a couple of points there, uh, Pete. Cause I, I didn't really touch on this, but it's, it's interesting because it goes both ways. And I told you Catalog Retail will come back into this conversation. Um, There's two two interesting movements in the market. So we, we think about consolidation of, of retail, as we've been talking about. So Boohoo. Um, boohoo have been interestingly acquiring brands uh, rather than retailers if you like uh, with their high street closures so oasis caramel and coast warehouse and if you think about those brands and the customers of boohoo previously um, there's probably a venn diagram everything in life's a venn diagram uh, so there's an overlap but not um not a big one um uh, within that but What they've also done is they've acquired a sort of a high street presence um, through the purchase app, but they have customer data. And interestingly, they are customer data driven. And then you've got the flip of that. Um, So you've got the likes of um, Fraser's Group and uh, obviously Sports Direct have gone more into the space of um, buying online brands and and people with customer data and credit expertise. Um, and and I'll go back to my first ever job uh, at Littlewoods, um, now Very dot uh, um, The proposition at Vary was Very was quite simple, yeah. It, it it was product, i.e., home, fashion, and credit, but it was driven out of customer data. And the principles of what they did have suddenly come back to the fore now. So what Klarna did, um, however long it was, that this sort of took the high street by storm and just went, well, what did they do 20, 30, 40 years ago? But just apply it to every brand, not the brand that you're operating within. And if you look at various response to that, they've got a direct um, competing product to Klarna. If you look at other high street retailers, I think credit is going to grow. But the access to customer data um, is also something that high street retailers coming the other way can benefit from. So I think there's going to be a very interesting ground where um, high street retailers that haven't felt the need to have an accurate product file because everything's merchandised in store um, haven't felt the need to leverage customer data to promote credit propositions to the right people um, that are going to obviously um, make sure that you don't get bad debt from that, but you do get sales and you're offering it to the right people in a responsible way. Um and leveraging customer data to then make range decisions. So what, ha, where have I got too much range? Where have I got a lot of substitutability? I can see from my customer data that there are 10 products here that are all competing for the same customer need and the same customer mission. Do I really need 10 of them? Could I have five in the world of multi- and, uh, multi-retail multi propositions? Um, and, and going that way, and I think it's really, really interesting that Almost your next catalogs of this world uh, have kind of come to that point. High streets get moving up the other way, but ultimately it comes down to what the catalog companies of 50 years ago were doing and and have always done. Um, But bringing that knowledge and expertise into the current world and
0: applying it. Um, Okay. So um, we're going to to, uh, move on to our final topic uh of today's discussion And we're going to talk about retail media so we've talked about uh so far a lot of difficulties for retailers and um the squeeze with the cost of living crisis um for, on consumers and um, what that means for retailers cost of goods going up so pretty dark times for many retailers however retail media offers a new path to retail profit And, um, you know, I don't know if it's the the LinkedIn algorithm has just totally sussed me out. But, you know, every time I scroll through LinkedIn, there are just reams and reams of stories about retail media and the opportunity that it offers for retailers. So, um, uh, you know, first of all, um, First of all, let's just look at the the retail media market size. So, uh, Boston Consulting Group and various other people have reported on retail market size. Size seems to be different um, depending on you know whose report you you read. But the BCG one, I think, um, let's go with that. They're a, a trusted source. So they say that the retail media market is growing twenty five percent year on year, up to an estimated value of a hundred million dollars by twenty twenty seven. I have seen some other estimates putting it maybe a 100- hundred. Um, million higher than that but uh, you know either way it's a huge market and it's growing really really quickly particularly in comparison to other forms of marketing and advertising. What exactly is retail media? I hear you ask. So retail media refers to retailers allowing brands to buy advertising space across their owned properties so that might be the retailer's website or in a physical store, Uh, and third-party properties, uh, which are typically other websites, using data to connect with consumers throughout that buyer journey. Uh, And one of the most prominent examples of retail media would be Amazon, something that most of us will be familiar with. And there's been a noticeable increase in sponsored product listings when you search for products on the Amazon website, and that's retail media in action. So brands are paying to get their products in front of highly relevant audiences, um, And this is a key point when consumers are at a critical point in their purchase journey. Um, And according to Digiday.com, Amazon's ad business earned uh, $9.5 billion in Q3 alone, uh, which is massive. So, Tom, um, why do you think retail media is gaining such rapid traction?
1: Uh, I think it's twofold, really. Uh, So everyone should be fully aware of the much publicized um, view on third party Cookies and data privacy. So, first thing to say is, um, third-party cookies will be going, and there are many reasons for that happening, um, and it and it varies across the globe. Uh, so, in terms of how that sort of data can be used, but ultimately, what what's clear is the major technology players are all have all accepted and are even pushing uh, for the fact that third-party cookie data is not really going to be used in advertising revenue. Um, Google's privacy policy, especially on that, um, has has drawn interest uh, from many areas. So the fact that Google are keen and are pushing this themselves always makes me a little bit suspicious as to what else they've got um, that is going to replace that and replace their revenues. Because I'm pretty confident they've got a plan um, and they wouldn't just be doing this um, out of the good of their own heart. But we'll, uh, we'll see and watch that space. The key thing that we're clear about is it's happening. And what it means is retailers have got to get control of their first-party data. Um, and there's a massive opportunity to leverage first-party data. We'll come back to catalogue companies again in a second, but who have been doing it for 50 years. Leverage first-party data uh, to, to make sure that they own the relationship with their customers. But interestingly, as you also described, Pete, this gives the opportunity for retail media play um, where they can also leverage that data to increase income and revenue um, from looking at selling other people's media and brands and products. Uh, the opportunity to do that is increasing and it's coming to the fore. Um, so on your, it's easy for the likes of Amazon, uh, the likes of Walmart, who are a multi-brand retailer, to monetize the data that they have for um their customers because brands there are so many brands within them competing for that share of the sort of purse that coke and pepsi are willing to spend a lot of money and media to advertise on walmart's website that that's that's how it started yeah that multi-brand retailer amazon the obvious one as well Pete mentioned however there's now an opportunity to think beyond that uh, and let's let's talk about high street retailers again so digital out of home um, digital screens within stores. Um, A lot of retailers are starting to put these in. Um, They're part of merchandising. They're part of a way of retail experience. But what it also means um, is that you have a way of communicating with the customer when they're in your store. Second thing is apps and the rise of apps. So every retailer seems to want an app. I think an app's a bit pointless unless there's um, a transactional element to it or a loyalty element to it. Um, But if you've got either of those two things, There's an opportunity and there's an opportunity in many ways to then start to monetize that data and to offer that asset up to different retailers offering um, complementary types of products that you can make money from. And as the retail market gets squeezed, why wouldn't you want to make money uh, from selling media? And you do that from getting hold of your own first party data. So I'll kind of give you an example that I've thought about recently as to where this translates. So like I say, if you go into Walmart, you'll see lots of ads for Pepsi and Coke and and they're paying them. They're paying Walmart for that space. You go on the website and you'll see banner ads uh, pushing those offers, promos, deals. But what's stopping us when I walk into McDonald's um, and I walk into McDonald's, which is on the high street. And on the high street, uh, McDonald's have lots of screens uh, and have an app now. Uh, And at the end of that app transaction, if some of those assets were given up to say, come into Primark today, um, and we've got 20% off women's wear, if you quote this code. Um, What you're actually doing is encouraging footfall into a um, high street store that is is a find uh, with McDonald's. Uh, I I think M&S is a really interesting one for this. Um, And I think M&S can think about where the types of, find retailers that they could start to um, drive footfall from. And, and it gets really, really interesting. So the, the the reason it's taken off is because people are making money from it. okay. And people have understood that first-party data has a value. And here's the important thing. The concept of the value exchange seems to be getting talked about again. Um, and the value exchange, if I will give you my data in return for something I get back. I mean, Tesco Club Card. Let's talk about that for a second. You cannot shop in Tesco anymore without a Tesco Club Card. You can't do it. It's it's ten percent more expensive. So the value, the, it's a bit of a naughty value exchange for Tesco. But they're basically gone. The value exchange is very overt grows.
0: as well now. I mean, it literally says it on the on the on the on the label on the, on the price label.
1: Yeah, they've not even tried to hide it. Um, and to the point now where I was at the checkout the other day and somebody at the front had a shop and they were like have you got a club card and they were like no <laughs> it's in the car and they were like do you want to go and get me me and queue is not good in the first place do you want to go and get it and I'm like no you don't want to go and get it because that is a long way away and I'm like nah it's too far and she's like it's going to cost you four pounds less on your shop and the guy at the front went wow oh. and someone went do you want my club card because I'll have your points and they were like yeah 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 right? So they came, they scanned it, the next person went through and they got got a club card. No, can I have your club card? It's it's got ridiculous, but back to the point. um, There's a value exchange. Um, And I think that the point, the the point that I'm trying to make is um, retailers have worked out that they can make money from selling assets in their own environment, which don't necessarily push their own goods. Technology Apps, data clean rooms, ways of doing that has enabled them to start monetizing it and to start putting relevant content on physical environments which, and personalize that, which hasn't been possible until recently. And as a result of that, there's an opportunity for retailers to make money and make margin from selling media. And if that's the possibility and it benefits their consumers, I come into a coffee shop and I get some great vouchers for m and why, why wouldn't uh, they do exactly. that?
0: Exactly. Um, it'd be interesting to see um, psychologically how consumers start to react to these kind of sponsored listings, sponsored ads, um, as opposed to the more organic ads. So, you know, um, searching for stuff which has really been uh, brought to the mainstream by Google. And I don't know about you, Tom, but when I do a Google search now, it will come back with some paid Uh, results and some organic results and I will almost always scan down beyond the paid results because I know you've paid to put your ad there to the organic results because I think you've actually earned your place on that screen and you know somehow I have more trust in those search results. Do you think the same will apply to a um, sponsored listings and organic listings um, within a a, a retail environment?
1: 100% yes Um, and, and simply this and I think Google's done it too much now You have to go too far down that page to get to the organic listings. Um, And the same applies for retail, which is it's got to be relevant to me, yeah, and it's got to offer me value. And if you're putting 10 things in front of me that aren't relevant and aren't offering me value just because someone's paid you to do it, you've lost me. Let's go back to what I said before. It's not easy. That's not ease. That's not speed. You're making me scroll. Um, So you've got to get it right. Uh, That doesn't mean to say that one sponsored listing isn't right. That's fine. Do you know what I mean? That's that's a little bit at the top of the page um, and you can take revenue from that. Ideally though, that one sponsored product is personalized and tailored to me and that's what retailers need to get right as they get into this space, which is make sure that it is complimentary offers um, to what people are looking for, that it, it either is an affined um, product to the need state that I'm in. Um, so um, if I'm buying sort of Clothing for a lot or party clothing. I always come back to this party dress for, 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 a Friday night. Um, what are the other products and categories that might be interesting to me? Um, but similarly, when we, when we start to talk about this multi retailer piece, what you don't want to end up doing is having a, t- a ton of Primark stuff. Um, at the top of my app when i'm actually just ordering a coffee in starbucks it's like this just doesn't work for me why, why are you doing this i'm just trying to get a coffee and sit down and eat my lunch and do some work um so yeah it's got to be complimentary and data is the way in which you um, ensure that that's the case but there are some good partnerships out there and some good opportunities for retailers to start thinking about what those complimentary offers are um, and how it could benefit them
0: yeah, def- definitely, and uh, interesting to see which retailers are brave with this too, um, because um, you know it might be um, either on a, a website or in a physical store. If you are using some of that media space to promote a third-party uh, retailer or brand, and then it's encouraging the customer to either click away or to literally walk down the, the street to get to that other uh, retailer or brand. Um, but it's for the good of the, 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 the consumer. Um, yeah, that's a that's a um, that is a brave decision to make so you lose that kind of dwell time and that um attention from the uh, consumer but i guess if it's done in the right way and you know maybe um uh, the retailer um says that you can get 10 percent off uh, you know retailer x if you spend 30 pounds in our store maybe that's a way to do it so both retailers uh, kind of benefit from that but it'll be interesting to see how that progresses and to your point tom it's got to be you know for the benefit of the consumer journey so you can't be kind of jolted with an offer for something that's not relevant at an inappropriate time in your in your journey with the uh, retailer okay cool and physical and in a physical environment as well i think you the uh how uh, media um Uh, it begins to be used in a physical environment will be really interesting to see. So, you know, a lot of formats have been a bit um, kind of boring so far, but there's an opportunity for more creative and immersive uh, formats. I mean, you've seen some things, particularly on larger billboards. I don't know if you ever see the Piccadilly Circus billboard. There's some incredible um, kind of immersive ad uh, formats being used that look like, you know, you've got monsters coming out from the billboard and all kinds of things. But if you could have that kind of uh, idea possibly not with monsters, uh, but in a retail setting, that might be something that, um, you know, really makes the most of that kind of physical retail experience and brings a, a brand to life, gets the consumer's a, a attention, and encourages them to uh, check that brand or that retailer out. So an interesting space to see develop.
1: Um, so we, we talked about retail media and the opportunity to, to leverage first-party data. I think it'd be remiss of us not to talk about the sort of around swelling change as to around digital media and how that's currently being bought briefly. Um, So the likes of PLAs and paid search um, with Google so product listing ads the likes of Meta and how people are targeting, the likes of uh, Insta and and product led ads there is all going to change Um, and and as that changes I'm finding it really interesting to see how um, media buying is, is being slow to catch up with that and how first party data can support with it. So at the minute, the way in which it tends to work is very much around broad audiences. Um, so passing customers over as to be quite broad. Here are my shoppers uh, meta. Can you go and find more of them? And, and and they'll do that, but they'll do it based on intent. Okay, So intent being, I, I know from all of the data sources that we have together that this consumer consumer's in the market for trainers. And I can talk about that because I'm constantly in the market for trainers and the amount of trainer ads I get across all of my social media is obscene and advertising works because I keep buying them. Um, So that's good. Intent is good, okay? But the ability to deliver intent is going to decline as third-party declines. It will still be there. Google has how they're doing it, um, but it will still be there. And that's one thing I don't like about the way in which media is bought at the minute through those types of uh, companies. Now, you give us an audience and we'll find the people that are going to convert. Second thing is what they maximise generally on is is ad revenue. So um, it is very much around clicks. Um, And then what we're looking is that closed feedback loop to try and get through to conversion. But it has to get better than that. Um, and, And this is where first party data has an opportunity. So where is that market going and what's happening and the sort of movement in that space? It really is down to leveraging first party data to optimize your media campaigns now. Yeah, do it now, because if you do it in six, eight months time, when third party is removed, you are going to be playing catch up and you are going to be in a lot of trouble. So what, what do we mean by that? And what does it look like? I think simply this. So audiences are going to stop being broad and generic. Yeah, they currently are because we'll let intent do the job. Um, we'll move away from a click-based model. And the final bit is um, intent will decline, but intent and interest will still remain, i.e. I'm interested in buying some trainers. That, that's what the social media companies and the, uh, and the likes of Google will do. But what do we need to do with first-party data? It has to be audience-driven. So first thing is, it's no longer broad audiences, it's tailored audiences, it's first party data, it's lookalikes. So the ability to take a specific audience, not just, um, uh, so we'll talk about very again. So what do very want? They might be running a women's fashion campaign, a high-end fashion campaign. Don't just give me, here's women um, who have bought fashion. What you want to do is to go here, here are a set, an audience that are refined with a very specific need state of fashion and high end. That's what you can do with first party data. The second bit, and here are profitable ones. So don't just give me anybody that's interested in buying these types of products. I'm going to get a lot of non credit, um, pay on, um, pay on a, a card, so pay off on a balance. I don't make enough margin because this is a Promoted um product offering, so there's no margin in in what I'm pointing out there. I want credit fashion conscious females for this campaign okay and, and and i and have intent on my first party data to do that now go and look alike to that group of people, not just a very broad anyone that's interested in women's fashion. So bespoke campaigns, fast audience generation, yeah? Moving away from broad audiences to specific audiences that have a specific aim, and multi-campaigns, Profit-based recruitment, that's the next thing. So moving away from a click-based model to a profit-based model, the closed feedback loop, making sure, um, and the likes of Google already want you to do this, give you back in their feeds your data, is this a profitable customer? What are the sales for this customer? The problem is that's their data and then because you've given it back to them. They're not telling you how they're optimizing based on that. They're just going, we will. And broadly, you've got to trust that they will. But it's black box. Um, so you, we've, we've got to, as data controllers, take ownership of our first-party data to make sure, no, no, we'll tell you what campaigns we want. We'll tell you whether these customers are the right ones for us. And we want you to look alike to more of the good customers um and, and and have that proper relationship. Uh, and then the final one is it will be augmented by intent. So once we have the right person that we're targeting, then apply your intent. And so I think that's that broad campaign approach, led by intent, to be a more campaign approach, driven by interest and value customer value is the way in which the market's going. To do that, retailers quickly need to get a hold of their first party data. And just before I get off my soapbox, because I could absolutely hear that I'm on one. This is going to get interesting around the world, right? Because already the UK are looking at different policies around cookies than the EU after Brexit. Um, in the UK, it's different already. So the way in which you'll need to operate, uh, and we'll use the US market in a second, and everything's going to come back to catalogue retailing in this podcast. But in the US, there are data co-ops. And what those data co-ops is, because in the US GDPR doesn't exist, you can bring together first-party data from multiple uh, retailers and consumer data sources, and you can use that data in a really transparent way to build lookalikes. Here are the people that I'm interested in finding. Can you find me more of them? Yeah. Remember this, Pete, like we did this 20 years ago. I'll build you a lookalike model, and I'll tell you how big your audience can go But here's the important bit. Transparently, I'll tell you what the attributes are as to why I'm saying that. And here's the data. Yeah? So not Google. Trust us. It's just in there. It's there. You give us your data. We'll do the rest. It's very much a, this is a data share agreement, and we work together to find those audiences. I think it's going to be really interesting. I think the UK are looking to not be as um, strict on cookie, opt-in, sign-up. Let's be honest. That's not working. So what a brilliant bit of GDPR that on every website you have to just click accept on the cookie policy, which everyone does. I mean, that's not working, is it? Um, or you just navigate off the website because you can't be bothered with it. Um, so they're looking at different ways to do that. I don't think third party in its entirety is dead. So there's definitely going to be a ways of linking data. Data clean rooms are going to be the future where first party data from different retailers and um Companies are put together probably to enable that data co-op type model, which isn't black box. It is more transparent. Um, but there's a lot that needs to happen to get there. And I think it'd be really interesting to see where Google go with their privacy work, how much they're willing to think about transparency. I don't think ever, but we'll see. But whether retailers taking ownership of their own first party data and storing that in that similar model to the US data co-ops and making that work starts to compete with that likes of Google, where actually we've got an affiliated data set here that's better than what you're doing, Google, because paid search is a great example. It's just become too expensive for anyone. Paid search was always the way in which you got sales. Now it's just too expensive. People have moved away from it. Uh, And I think there's loads of interesting stuff that's going to come out of that, probably another podcast um, and one we'll dive into. But the final bit that I want to say about it is, It is critical that retailers get hold of their first-party data today, connect it to those media sources to make sure that they're ready for specific audience-led campaigns, data collaboration, which will facilitate data monetization through media. Uh, And they start to look to do that because if they wait, and if they wait 12 months' time and third-party data is canned, you'll be competing in a very expensive world where Google have got all your data and your PLA ad listings are going to go up twenty thirty percent, and that's just going to hit straight on your margins. So loads of interesting stuff in that space. I'll get off my soapbox. So you'll probably want to edit all of this out of the podcast because I've I've gone on a bit too much. But <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't have the retail media conversation without without going into all of that and giving my thoughts on it.
0: Yeah, no, brilliant. I'd echo. Um... Uh, All of the points that you made there, really, and and that that need to be in control of your first-party data uh, is so uh, vital now. So, yeah, great point to finish on. So we've covered three um, really key topics at the moment. Um, We talked about the cost of living crisis. We've talked about the collapse and consolidation of retail, um, retailers, and we've talked about retail, media, and new Path to profit for retailers. Um, So, um, thank you everyone for listening. Please tune in again next time. Uh, We're going to touch on the rise of the circular economy. We're going to talk about what's next for department stores, uh, and we're going to ask, is it dark days for Black Friday? So, three more interesting topics to talk about next time. Thank you, Tom, for your uh, valuable input. Much appreciated.
1: Uh, It's it's been a pleasure as always.
0: (laughs) Okay, thank you, Tom. Appreciate it, and um, yeah, join us again next time. Thanks. Thank you.